Welcome to GCC, everybody. Psalms 34 says, Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. Let's stand and sing to the Lord this morning. Yeah. 
church and I have another story if you'd like to hear it. Oh, let's hear it. Okay. So Phyllis McKenzie recently shared a couple words she felt God had laid on her heart. Lonely and defeated. A young man in the service came for prayer and had been struggling with those things for months and couldn't figure out why because he's always around friends and family and generally a happy person. After getting prayer, he shared with us, hearing these words and the prayer spoken over me made me feel seen and like I can finally get past this. I've felt so much better since then. Praise God. Amen. Prayer is such an important part here at GCC. Uh, if you've grabbed that prayer card, I invite you to fill that out. Uh, just as an act of worship, go ahead and start filling that out uh, all throughout the service. If something comes to you, please fill that out. We love praying for people. Our elders and our, our pastors, our staff, we love praying for you. So go ahead and fill that out throughout the service. Also, if you've got that worship guide, go ahead and grab that. Uh, you can see the service we have planned for you. Uh, we got a few more songs we're going to sing. Trevor's got a life-changing message. It's going to be great. You don't want to miss it. We've also got a, a few events in there you'll see. Uh, mainly, we got summer camp coming up. Amen? Woo! Yeah. Everybody say amen. Yeah. Amen. We've got those coming up. We're excited about that. Uh, so go ahead and check those out uh, in your worship guide. And if you're new here, there's also information on the back of the worship guide for you and on the prayer card. Um, and we have a new kiosk in the lobby. We'd love for you to step out and, um, and come out there. Yeah, amen. So once again, go ahead and grab that uh, welcome card. Uh, whether you're new here or, or this, or you've been here every week this year, uh, we fill these out as a church. Uh, but if you're new here, just mark the I'm new here. Uh, we'd love to get some information to you. Also, like Leah said, we've got a kiosk for you back there. It's got a little gift for you. We'd love for you to stop by. Also, if you're, if you're wondering, hey, what is GCC like if you're new? Well, go ahead and mark Get to Know People at Great Commission Church. We've got something called a connect group. You don't want to miss it. It meets uh, either, uh, I think, after first service or that right? Second service. In between. And you're going to meet some wonderful people, have a little Bible study, and get to know what it's like to be here at Great Commission Church. I invite you to fill that out uh, during the service. And as we move into the next song, I want to encourage everyone, again, to fill out that welcome card. We'd love to hear from you and um, especially pray for you this week. 
Um, you can place those cards in the boxes on your way out, and um, we'll pass it back to the band. Yeah. Amen. We are free, free, forever we're free. Come join the song of all the redeemed. Let's stand and sing that this morning.
continue to worship through a time of giving. We do this every week. We, we pause in our, our busy schedules. We focus on the Lord and we say, Lord, today I want to give you a gift. 
Before we pass the buckets, I wanted to talk about something that's pretty important to me, and that's coffee. Coffee's important. Is that okay if I talk about coffee for a second? So when I was growing up, there were two kinds of coffee. Things have changed significantly in the last 40 years. There was Folgers and Maxwell House. My dad was a Folger guy. My grandpa was a Maxwell House guy. Today, it's, super more, it's a lot more advanced. You've got different types of ways to brew things. I don't even understand some of the science behind this. But here's what I like about coffee. I like the smell of coffee. I like when it's brewing, it brings all the memories of everything. It's warm, it's cozy. I'm thinking, man, it's going to be a good day when I smell that coffee. The reason I wanted to tell you a little bit about coffee and what I like about coffee is that there's a verse in the Bible that describes Noah building an offering, an offering, uh, an altar, and offering a sacrifice to the Lord. And God said this. He said, that's a pleasing aroma about Noah's sacrifice. In the New Testament, in Philippians 4.18, Paul told the people that the financial gifts that they were giving were a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Such powerful imagery. I love thinking about that when I give, that, hey, this gift is a pleasing offering to the Lord. It's a, it's a, a fragrant aroma, and it's, bringing, uh, it, it's making my God happy. So God views those contributions as a fragrant offering. Um, So I wanted to think about that today. You know, when you wake up on Monday and you smell that coffee, maybe your spouse woke up early and started brewing that coffee for you, and you wake up and smell it, thinking that's a pleasing aroma, just like that gift that I gave on Sunday. Pleasing aroma to the Lord. I'm going to pray for us as the ushers give to uh, bring the buckets up, and we're going to pass the buckets. You can place your offering in that as we go. Let's pray. Father, we are... Uh, grateful that we get this opportunity uh, to give. And God, we want it to be a time of joy in our hearts. And God, we want this to be a fragrant offering to you as you're looking and you say, God, my people have gathered and they've worked so hard to make that money and God, we're giving it back. We want you to do much with it. We want it to go to the nations. We want more people to hear about the gospel. Father, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and receive the offering today. find Mark chapter 1 in your Bibles. Mark chapter 1. A year ago, me and three other guys from our church were in East Africa on this day. We were in Kenya looking at observing and preaching and some of the uh, missionary work that we support. And it was Super Bowl Sunday in Africa and nobody cared. (laughs) They play a different kind of football there. We call it soccer, right? 
But you know what? It's the big, this is game day, right? But not Super Bowl necessarily. Uh, it's game day around the world because the saints of God are gathering on the Lord's day to remember the gospel and remember Jesus Christ and to, and to preach the, his word and to encourage each other and pray for one another. And we get to do that 52 times a year. Isn't that good? Before we get to uh, today's message, this new series I'm going to do, I just want to, can I, can I give you a win? You want to hear a good touchdown? Oh, I couldn't hear you today. Yes? Hey, look, God's still doing today what he's always done. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his power has not diminished even one ounce. And the healing that Jesus did in the Gospels, he's still doing. And he's doing it in our church. Now, I want to I give you a story that was submitted to us by one of our church members. Her name is Mary Lynn Brooks. She's sitting right there. She won't be there in the second service, so you get the live and in-person yes testimony from her. Mary Lynn has a son. His name's Matthew. He's a grown man. And back in September, he was diagnosed with a very aggressive, very, very uh, sensitive form of cancer. And it didn't look good, did it? It was a grieving mother. Uh, and it was rare cancer. It was aggressive. It would require extensive surgery and then possible journey through treatment. But the outlook was terrible. And so she asked her small group to pray for her. She asked her friends, lots of people. And in the course of the discovery of this disease, her son lost interest in surviving. Uh, but he constantly talked about the goodness of God. And he actually got closer to the Lord with his cancer. By the way, you shouldn't waste your cancer. Um, and uh, Mary Lynn said, I prayed he would recover for his, I prayed that he would recover his will to survive as initially he declined further contact with his doctors. And then one night, one day, Mary Lynn and I had a prayer about this, and I just said a, I said a comment I meant. I prayed something I believe, but it was, it was short. I just, I prayed with Mary Lynn, God, would you do work in Matthew that can only be described as something you could do? And would you confound his doctors, and would you, when he goes back for a scan, God, would would you heal him of this cancer so that his doctors will say there's no more cancer there and you don't need surgery? We prayed that prayer. Yes. And, and I want you to know that when I pray for you and when our church prays for you, we believe what we're praying. We, we, we pray in such a way that if God says no, we're disappointed. It's called praying in faith, right? Uh, and so we prayed, and this is what Mary Lynn sent this week. She says, our How's God answered your prayer? How did, the, how did the Lord minister to you? She said, a month ago, Matthew tells me he wants to live and will do whatever the doctors say. He wants, he wants the end of his life, however long that is, to serve the Lord. At the surgeon's office, he went for final review to schedule the surgery. Two doctors examined him and, and examined the new data. And the head of the department says, no surgery is indicated no treatment necessary, there is no cancer. Look what God does. So today, my name's Trevor, I'm the pastor here, and hey, pray for my wife, she's, she's so sick she couldn't come to church, and if you know her, so uh, she wishes she could be here today. Um, we start a new series today called Grace at the Lord's Table. My favorite professor from Bible College wrote a book on this after studying the Lord's Supper from Genesis to Revelation for 40-something years. 
And this, this book just blew my mind. And you know that when we, when we had the Lord's Supper as a, as a faith family, it's different from the way you grew up. And it's not a time that we're sad. It's not a time that we're uh, trying to feel guilty and, and, and do penance before the Lord. Instead, we come to the table celebrating the goodness and the might of Jesus. Yes? And so I'm going to reinforce that over the next three weeks. There are four accounts of the Lord's Supper in the Bible. In Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and in 1 Corinthians. I covered the Matthew one very quickly in a devotion before the Lord's Supper a few weeks ago. So today I'm going to do Mark. Next week, Luke. The week after that, uh, 1 Corinthians. And at, at the end of all three services, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper together after having learned more about it. Does that make sense? So that's what we're doing today. But there are four accounts of the Lord's Supper in the Bible, but the way most modern evangelical churches that I've ever been in observe the Lord's table, you would think that there's only one account repeated four times. That's not very helpful. When God repeats something, he means for us to go and dig and go and look and at least put it in the context of the book that it's written in to see the point he's making in that book. And so today, we're going to do that with the gospel of Mark, because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians are each written with different audiences in mind, and they're written with different purposes in mind. So what can we learn about how to think of the Lord's Supper within the themes of each of those books? How about this? Did you know that Mark states his most important theme of his gospel in the very first verse? Here's the very first verse of the gospel of Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, as we read through Mark's gospel, having heard that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark's gospel is the shortest of the four. It only has 16 chapters. It's the quickest read. Then we should expect to see material, to see stories, to see verses in Mark Supporting the deity of Jesus as God's son. I'm going to give us four examples in our text today. The first one is the first verse we've already looked at, Mark 1.1. The next two are summaries of two stories that you might be familiar with. And the last one is another singular verse. But in your gospel of Mark, if you libel, from a bird's eye view... Starting at chapter 2, verse 1, in my Bible, it's on page 1187. I don't know if that's helpful you or not. From chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. That is a crucial section of Mark. And the conflict of the story in all the gospel begins right in that section. And in that section, there are five events, five Bible stories are covered in those verses. Two of them give Jesus the most problems. And those two are the ones I want us to think about in light of grace at the table today. We just sang a song that, re, that, that alluded to the first story. Because the first story is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And in Mark 2, 12, Jesus heals a paralyzed man after they tore off the roof. Remember that story we just sang about it? Uh, they, they vandalized a man's home that Jesus was visiting and preaching in, and they, and they lowered their friend down, and Jesus heals him in the middle of the sermon. It's a memorable sermon because of that. And as everyone looks intently at Jesus, 
during, in the middle of this drama, he says something that we celebrate, but his comments offend everybody in the room. Here's Mark chapter 2, verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now today when, stand up Chris, early and show everybody. I want you to see the world's biggest, turn around, world's biggest 49er fan right here. This guy wants the 49ers to win the Super Bowl. Now Chris loves the Kansas City Chiefs. Today when the Chiefs score a touchdown, Chris is going to give everybody a high five all around. Because that's going to excite his soul and, and, and it's going to be this collective uh, victory. But listen to me. When, when modern Christians hear Jesus say, son, your sins are forgiven you, it's high fives all around the church building. That, that is awesome to us. We even tell others that nothing's more important to hear Jesus say than our sins are forgiven. Isn't that true? But if you were a devout Jew living in Israel in the first century, and if you were in the room with Jesus... And you hear him say, son, your sins are forgiven you. Everybody look at me. That is unheard of sacrilege. You don't do that. No one would dare to claim this. And if you don't believe me, Mark chapter 2 verse 7 backs me up. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, if Jesus is going to say... I have authority to forgive sins. That's a pretty lofty claim, isn't it? How do you back it up? How do you close the mouth of the doubters? It's very simple. You perform an undeniably great miracle in full view of everyone in the room. And so Jesus heals the man. The man gets up and he walks out. And the crowd was amazed. And the text says that everyone glorified God and exclaimed, we never saw anything like this. Well, that's the first event that I want you to think about. Here's the second one. The other event is the final story in chapter 2. And there, Jesus and his disciples are hungry and they're walking through a grain field. And they're plucking heads of grain and they're snacking. You know, it's like they're on a diet and they're, they're eating tree bark and grass and, and, and nuts and everything. It's just January 1st, right? And they're, they're going to get it right this year. And so they're, the, the Mosaic law allowed for people that are just kind of passing through to eat the, the grain that's on the, the corners of the fields. And so that wasn't the problem. They weren't stealing, but they're plucking heads of grain and they're making all the religious leaders mad because the problem is the day they're doing it Saturday. It's Shabbat. It's the Sabbath day, the day when, when no work shall be done. So the religious leaders who get mad and offended urge Jesus to correct his gang of men. Hey, rebuke your disciples. They're doing work on the Sabbath. And do you remember what Jesus does? He just refuses. Instead, he says, let me tell you a story from the Bible. And the story goes something like this. You guys remember David? Kill Goliath? What did David kill Goliath with? Couldn't hear you? No, he killed Goliath with a sword. Knocked him down with a stone. Yeah, we were at, I wasn't trying to test you. I'm just, I thought you read your Bible closer than that. You never know, right? 
That's going to be important here in a second. David kills Goliath. That story we know. He did it when he was in the youth group, by the way, about 16 years old. David and his soldiers, though, they're on the run from King Saul, and they need food. So they approach a priest at a shrine, and they make two requests of him. They say, uh, we need food, we need weapons. Guys, you need to read 1 Samuel. It is a man's man's book. There's, there's men and women in there. There's, there's men and, 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 and food and fighting and weapons. And it's like, gals, if you, if, you wanted, if you want your man to be happy, just kind of give him some guns and ammo and feed him well. Amen, guys, right? So you got that from the Bible. We, found it. we read our Bible with, with imagination. And David says to the priest, we need food, we need weapons. And the priest says, well, there's only one weapon here. It's in, the, it's in the closet. It's wrapped up in a cloth. It's Goliath's sword. You know it pretty well. And David says, well, that'll work. And he says, but I'm sorry to tell you we don't have any food. The, the, the only thing edible in the whole place is the showbread. The, the bread that the priests have made in one of the sacrifices that's set aside for God and is not to be eaten. You know what David says? David says, unusual circumstances, God says it's okay. Not making that up. He says, look, me and my guys, we've followed the rules to be consecrated. This is extenuating circumstances. I've got a one-on-one private relationship with God. Trust me, priest, it's okay if we eat it. You need to go read your Bible. It says stuff like this. Because David understood the nature of God, not the nature of the rules God had. And there's an exception. You can go read that story, 1 Samuel 21, 3 to 9. So God makes an exception for David. Now listen to me. Keeping that exception in mind, we now understand that Jesus thinks that God's rules are given to show us what God's like. You see, the world will tell you that you believe in a God who is just waiting for you to mess everything up so that he can punish you. But if you'll read your Bible, you'll find out God's nothing like that. So he gives us his rules to show us what he's like. And listen, the exceptions prove the rules. And so David gets to make this exception, and he and his, he and his army eats the showbread that was only consecrated for God. Because David says, you know what? God's a God of grace. And God understands the difficulty of some of these life experiences. And I now know what he's like. And so God is okay with this exception here. The exceptions prove the rules and they show us his goodness and his mercy. And here's how the end of that story, here's the comment that's made in Mark 2, 27 and 28. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. There it is. God makes rules to bless people. He doesn't make rules to curse people. Uh, The Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. That's an important thing for you to know. Uh, But more importantly, it's the next thing Jesus said. Verse 28, Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. My goodness. What has Jesus just communicated and claimed in these two events in Mark 2? My brothers and my sisters, the first thing he claimed is he has authority to forgive sins. And the second, he has the right to define what it means to properly observe the Sabbath. You know what that means? 
Jesus says, if you want to know the will of God and you're confused on it, I'll clear it all up for you because I'm the one who determines it. <clears throat> Remember the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, the authority to forgive sins and the authority to determine the will of God are privileges that belong only to God. Do we agree on this? So, my brothers and my sisters, what's Jesus claiming for himself? He's claiming that he is indeed God. He's the God-man. We are unapologetically and glad to say this, we're a Jesus church. That, that when you come here, our hero's Jesus. Our Savior is Jesus. Our Lord is Jesus. And look at me, our God is Jesus. He's got authority to forgive sins. He's Lord of the Sabbath. One more verse will reinforce Mark's theme that Jesus is God because he's the Son of God. Mark 15, 39. As Jesus was dying, as he was nailed to the cross, a Roman soldier was paying close attention. And when Jesus died, this Roman soldier said something no one expected him to say. Mark 15, 39. So when the centurion who stood opposite him, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now look, you would expect a disciple to say that, who'd heard Jesus' teachings and walked with him and seen the miracles. You might even expect a secret Pharisee like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea to say, see, he's the son of God. You would never expect a pagan, a man under the authority of the Roman emperor. Do you guys know what the, what the motto of, what, do you know what the motto was in the Ro Roman Empire? Caesar is Lord. That, he probably had it tattooed on his arm somewhere. He had to say it every day when he got to work. Caesar is Lord. In fact, if you ask him in front of all his friends, who's God in the empire, it's Caesar or he dies. And yet when Jesus breathed his last, he says, surely this man was the son of God? Where in the world did he get that idea? I mean, he was a man who must have seen hundreds of crucifixions in service to the Roman emperor. I mean, it was just part of the job. He'd seen people die on crosses. Why would Jesus' execution incite a verbal response from him? Well, he doesn't know what you know as a reader of the gospel. And he says this in Mark 15, yes? That means there's 14 chapters that you've already read, and you already know why he says that. Because anyone reading Mark's gospel all the way to chapter 15 already knows the answer to the question. The one who died was also the one who forgives sins. The one who died on that cross was also the one who defines the will of God. And may I say to you, when Jesus rose from the dead in Mark 16, he demonstrated once and for all that his claims were valid. So those are the four. That's the four evidences that I offer to you today that Jesus really is a son of God. Now there's one more thing we need to talk about before we connect it to the Lord's Supper. You willing to hear it? One of the other major themes in Mark's gospel is that he presents Jesus' disciples as men 
let me say it this way. They realize who Jesus is kind of, sort of, but they miss what it really means. Let me say that again. Jesus' disciples, they understand kind of, sort of who he is, but they miss the impact and what it really means. And Mark means for you to see that when you read it. So, in Mark chapter 8, in fact, I'm going to turn to Mark chapter 8 in your Bible and just kind of look at it on the page from, from above. I've got time to do this. Do you see that Mark chapter 8 begins with the feeding of the 4,000? Say yes or no. Do you see that the uh, two, two sections later, there's something like beware of the leaven of, of the Pharisees and Herod, yes? And then the next section is he heals a blind man. And then the next section, the next section, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, all those in order, Mark wants you to, to list them and look at them where they are and the order that he puts them in. It's all, it's all important, every bit of that. So just keep Mark chapter eight open Look at it from the bird's eye view. In Mark chapter 8, there are two miracles. And one of them is the feeding of the 4,000, and the other one is the healing of the blind man. And the way the disciples respond to these miracles makes this thing clear that they kind of sort of know who he is, but they don't really get it. For the second time in Mark, the disciples are there when Jesus feeds an astonishingly large crowd of people with basically a happy meal. Do you remember this, these stories? The first one, in Mark 6, he feeds 5,000 men and their wives and their children with five loaves and two fish. And in this one, he feeds 4,000 people. And both times, there is a surplus of food that they measure in basketfuls. And it's the same word for basket as Luke uses in the, in, in the book of Acts. It's the basket they lowered the Apostle Paul down over the wall of Jerusalem in. It's a big basket. It's a lot of food left over, starting with, starting with hardly any in Jesus. That's all you need, yes? There's hardly any in Jesus. And so there's this feeding miracle. When they board the boat to leave the feeding miracle, and guys, they go fishing and go out on the ocean in boats. Is there anything that makes you hungrier than getting out in the water in a boat? Well, the apostles and Jesus, they get on the boat, and, and they were so overwhelmed by Jesus' miracle again that they forget, and they kind of do the guy thing, and they don't go to the store. And they only have one loaf of bread. Not enough to feed like 13 guys in the crew of the boat, right? And when you get out on the water, it makes you hungrier. And so this is a big guy moment. Forgot to go to the store before the Super Bowl party, yes? Right? This, is, this is it right here. They noticed too late that they forgot to stock up on food for the journey. And because they only have one loaf of bread, Jesus goes, object lesson. And he tells them, and everybody look at me. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What's another word for leaven? Yeast. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Well, the disciples are kind of logheads, right? They probably played linemen on the football team. They weren't like the smartest guys in class, and it just doesn't register. You know what they say? They say, why is the guy talking about bread? Is it because we forgot to go to the store and we only have one loaf? They just miss it. 
He's talking about yeast because we didn't buy enough bread. Now listen to me. Jesus can't believe how blind they are. <laughs> they can't believe, he can't believe how blind they are to what's happening all around them. So he quizzes them on how the earlier feedings turned out. Hey, remember there's 5,000 men and their families, and how'd that go? Well, that went pretty good. You had 12 basketfuls left over. And when I just fed 4,000, how'd that go? Lots of basketfuls left over. And he, go, he looks at him and he goes, do you think I got a bread problem? I'm not talking about that. Can't believe that you don't see it. And then he reprimands them. And here's Mark 8, 21. So he said to them, how is it that you do not understand? What's wrong with you guys? Have you been with me this long and it's not registering with you? How is it that you don't understand? And then there's a miracle after the reprimand. The next miracle, if we dare... Please don't throw anything at me. If we dare to call it this, Jesus' next miracle is, is his only near miss. Anybody that tells you that the gift, of he, the gift of healing in the New Testament by the apostles and Jesus was instant healing forever, immediately and awesomely in front of everyone, hasn't read their Bibles carefully. Do you even know this? Watch this. <laughs> First of all, Jesus spits on the eyes of the blind man. Say amen. When was the last time you spit in somebody's eyes? Did it go well? Were you still friends? But, but it's Jesus. He gets to do that. Jesus spits on his eyes. You, you guys remember? You can look at it in Mark chapter 8. He spits on the eyes of the blind man. He lays his hands on him. And then he says this. He says, what do you see? You know what that guy says? I see men like trees walking. Now for us, we'd go, hey, you went from zero sight to blurry men looking like trees. Look at what happened in, in, in our midst. That'd be amazing, right? That's not good enough for Jesus. Now, do you think Jesus goes, What's wrong with my healing zapper, right? It's he going, no, he's doing this to make a theological point. So he gives the guy a partial healing, and the guy says, I see men walking around like trees. In 1987, no, it's 88, because 87, all my friends got one, and I always got one later. I got, I, got my first new, I got my first Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES, hallelujah, the only real video game system. 1988. And what did everybody play on the Nintendo Entertainment System? Duck. Super Mario Brothers. What's the other one with the gun? Duck, Duck Hunt. And uh, what's the guy with the, little, with the little hood walking around? Zelda. Zelda. All those games are cool. There was one very difficult game. It's called Top Gun. Remember Top Gun? And, and Top Gun was hard, and there was a, there was a phase on it, a, a part of the game, where you're like Tom Cruise, right? And you've got to land the plane on the aircraft carrier. And if you, come in too, if you come in too hot and you come in too high, you, uh, you crash and you, the game's over. But then there was this thing, there was this feature where, oh my goodness, I'm too high and I'm too fast. I'm going to make another pass around and try it again. 
I'm going to raise up on the, on the plane. I'm going to try to land a sucker again. So on the first pass, Jesus spits on his eyes. He touches him. And the guy says, I see men walking around like trees. And Jesus goes, all right, came in too hot, came in too fast. I got to make another pass. Like a fighter pilot who didn't land in the perfect spot on the aircraft carrier, Jesus makes another approach, Mark 8, 25. Then he put his hands on his eyes again, and he made him look up. And he was restored, and he what? Saw everyone clearly? Okay, so the second pass worked. The first pass was pretty good if you're blind. Second pass, everything's clear. The blind man, everybody look at me. This is so, this is Dr. Allman insight, so good. The blind man now saw clearly, unlike the disciples. And that's the point Mark's making by putting that, that miracle right after the, their not understanding about the bread. You see, they see like the blind man after Jesus' first approach. They're, they're seeing who Jesus is, but he's like a man walking around like a tree. When it comes to who Christ is, they have an image of him, but it's blurry. It's like trees walking around. Listen to me. They think he's probably the Messiah, but they do not yet see his deity. And the very next scene in Mark is Jesus asking the disciples who he is. Here's, verse eight, here's Mark 8, verse 29. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. What's so another word for Christ? Messiah. Friends, don't miss this. Because I'm, I'm teaching you how to read your Bible, especially the Gospels and narrative literature. It is no coincidence that Peter's famous confession, you are the Christ, comes directly after the two-stage process of Jesus healing the blind man. Because as true as it is that Jesus is the Messiah, that's still blurry. It's like men walking around like trees. Even that crucial understanding that Jesus is the deliverer, that all the prophets predicted in the Old Testament, that still falls short of the goal that Mark has for his readers. Why do you say that? Because we're looking back in hindsight. But listen to me. Put yourself in the first century and make yourself Jewish and living in Israel. At that point in history, devout Jews revered the coming Messiah, but in no way did they think that he would be equal with God. Would he be powerful? Yes. Would he be deity? No. And then you have this awkward moment, Mark 8, 32 and 33. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Can I just say... Maybe rebuking Jesus, you didn't think that through, you know. You could ask his brothers. No, he was never wrong, right? So he rebukes Jesus, and Jesus returns the favor in verse 33. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus hears Peter Telling him, look, you're never going to die. I'm going to die for you. and I'm not going to let you get killed. And you're not going to the cross. And Jesus says, I hear the voice of Satan in that. 
Go sit on the sideline and think about it for a second. At this point, although his disciples are not completely ignorant about him, they say you're the Messiah, they still don't get it. I mean, they're rebuking him, and he's saying, I hear the voice of Satan when you talk. It is yet unclear to them who Jesus is. So can I tell you? They see, but they do not see clearly. Now let me land a plane. Let me apply this to our, our lives, and how, how does this connect to the Lord's Supper? The other thing that we must understand to truly grasp Mark's gospel is the problem of the proper response to Jesus. In other words, who responds to him the right way? The disciples fail in their response so that he says, how is it that you do not understand? And listen to me. The Lord's Supper in Mark comes after this. The ones who fail in their proper response to Jesus are still invited to the table. I told you it was grace at the table. It's not your performance, and it's not you leveling up, and it's not your spiritual maturity that gets you here. It's only the grace of Jesus. Why would Jesus receive such people into table fellowship who do not really understand all that it means? Surely there were better candidates. If that's true, who would they have been? How is it possible for people who only halfway understand Jesus and who only barely grasp his work, how is it possible for them to be welcome at his table, which is, I remind you, the table of the Son of God? The answer is there are no other candidates. There's redeemed sinners and there's no one else. Those who follow Jesus rarely get it. They rarely, they rarely make it. All of us fail to understand fully who Jesus is. Isn't that true? All of us fail fully to, to grasp the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us. These are truths that are beyond us. They're strange to our ears. They're outside our normal life experience. And whom else could Jesus have included at his table? Whom else could he have brought into fellowship? To whom, who, to whom could he have entrusted the mission to evangelize the world? And while you're pondering the answer to those questions, let me ask a more difficult one. How can he, the Son of God, God himself, tolerate such people at his table? You know what the answer is? The answer is, because he's the Son of God, he's the only one who can forgive sins. Only God can do that. Only God would do that. And because he's forgiven you of your sins, he says you come to my table and be part of my family. Only the good God, full of grace and mercy, would bring sinners to his table knowing their failure to understand who he really is. Only the gracious God would invite people who've regularly failed to trust in him and to love him to his table of grace. So what sort of people is the Lord's Supper for? Look at me. It's for failures. It's for people who don't get it. It's for me. It's grace at the table. 
So when you come to it today, you remember you're worthy to be there because Jesus has said to you, son and daughter, your sins are forgiven you. It's the gospel. In a second, I'm going to pray. And when I pray, the elders are going to come and get ready for the table. And today, we come to the table of the Son of God. And you need to thank him that he said to you, your sins are forgiven. Now, who can come to the table? If you're a Christian, you come to the table. If you have unbaptized children, let them come. Don't let them take of the elements. Somebody told me last week, because we've done the Lord's Supper this way for years and years, when he was a child, his parents brought him to the table, but wouldn't let him have the elements. And that's how he heard the gospel and was evangelized and believed. So you bring your kids to the table, you let them see what they're missing. If you are a believer and, you, and your commitment is, I have the Lord's Supper at my church, I get that, I kind of do that myself, you're welcome to stay in your seat and observe us. There is no judgment in this room. If you're, if you're not a believer in Jesus yet, this table's not for you. And I want you to think about that as you watch us do something that's a covenant with our Lord and hear Jesus say to you, you must be born again. You must receive me, believe on my name. And if you do, I'll give you the right to become children of God. Uh, this is a holy time and we're gonna share that together. It's about for prayer. Elders, you come. Father, we can't wait to the day that we see you face to face, but thank you for this tangible way to see the new covenant and to see the gospel at your table where you accept us. We give you praise, Jesus. We give you worship, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for forgiving our sins. We celebrate it at the table for your glory. Amen. Now the ushers will release you by rose.
As we get ready to close out the service today, prayer team, if you will, go, go ahead and come forward. I want to share a story with you here in a minute. But prayer team, if you will, just make your, your way up towards the front, and we'll close with prayer ministry. But I want to share a good story with you. Uh, we're trying to be in the habit of sharing answered prayer and how God moves with us, and I want to tie it with something else. Uh, Ms. Lynn, I'm going to go ahead and use your name because I think people will... Uh, this may resonate with them. They might just want to want to hear who this is and and how you've uh, how you've gotten over this. Uh, when Miss Lamb was in high school, her dad had a job that took him out of town quite a bit, and it just worried her constantly about the safety of the family. So much so that her her mom, you know, either wasn't too worried about it or was kind of just not that that person. Uh, that took care of these things, and she went around the house constantly checking the doors, the windows, just kind of fear for her safety. And so much so that later on in her life, when she uh, got ready to marry Mr. Jim, it was kind of a, a deal breaker if he had a job that took him out of town. She said, I just, I'm not going to do that again. I just, I'm not going to live in fear. Uh, so as things progressed, he would always take care of when he had to go out of town. But the fear really never went away. Uh, well, here recently, the events of Mr. Jim's passing has kind of put her in a position uh, where this was uh, needed to be dealt with. Uh, and she has been praying, uh, praying with Dr. Donaldson as she's gone through some counseling just in regards to this. And we can say today that she is able to stay on, on her own and without that spirit of fear. Is that pretty accurate, Miss Lynn? Uh, if that's, that's something that you worry with, I just invite you to go visit with her. Uh, guys, I've been reading a book probably uh, for the last year. It's called A Praying Life. If you're, if you're interested in that, come see me. I'll, I'll get you hooked up with it. But one of the things that this guy said in this book, pastor, he's, he's uh, wrote this book been doing the ministry for quite a while, but he said, uh, when we stop praying for things like that, or just we don't spend the time in prayer, he said, it's really just one thing, or a couple of things. He said, you are quietly confident that your time, talent, and money will fix your problems. And I'm going to add one more to that in this, this year, 2024, the election cycle. You're going to come forward. Some of you will for prayer here in just a moment. Highly encourage you to do that. But folks, what would be wrong before you left here just saying, Lord, uh, I'm not totally comfortable with going forward and getting prayer, but will you help me to trust you more when I leave here than I did when I entered? Will you take away some of my unbelief? Would you do that? Would you help me to love Jesus more like you do? like I do. Maybe those would be good things. Hey, could you just turn to your neighbor before you left and say, what's one thing I can pray for you about before we leave here today? Would that be okay? Could we be a praying church and not be quietly confident in our own abilities? Because I think Miss Lynn got to a point where she was pretty helpless to deal with her problem. 
And a lot of us are like that. You kind of got to get to that helpless state, you know? Hey, look, I hope you have a great day. I didn't want to be too heavy, but that's been on my, been on my mind quite a bit. If you need prayer as we dismiss, please come forward and get some prayer from one of these folks. They'll be glad to pray for you. You're dismissed. Have a great Super Bowl Sunday.